is dismissed for junior church in the fellowship hall. Good morning, all, especially you mothers. Happy Mother's Day. It's a great time of year to be able to, to uh, celebrate our mothers, and uh, God has blessed us with our mothers. Today, if you would open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to read through this passage today, and uh, we're going to read the whole chapter, actually. So go ahead and open to 2 Timothy 3. I want to read for us the entire chapter. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your blessing on this time. We ask that you would speak to us from your word. That your spirit would be at work in our hearts that even now you would be conforming us to the image of your Son. We ask for your blessing as we open your word. In Jesus' name, amen. My uh, poor mother drew the short straw when I was 15, and she got to be the one to drive with me as I was trying. We didn't have hours back then. We didn't have a certain number of hours uh, clocks hadn't been invented yet, so we just had to drive for a period of time or uh, whatever. So my mom drew the short uh, straw, and I got to ride with her, or she got to ride with me while I was uh, uh, getting those first hours on the road and, and learning the rules of the road and, and things like that. And, and uh, I was a good driver. I had been driving since I was very young. And so it wasn't the operation of the vehicle that, that was uh, any question. It was, you know, obeying any kind of rules on the road. And so my mom got to teach me those. And as she was teaching me these things, as she was 
uh, talking through how to navigate traffic and, and uh, you know, stop signs and all that kind of stuff. There were several things that she taught me uh, during those years or during those months where I was doing that that I still remember and I still now pass on to my children. Uh, good uh, rules of thumb for the road, how to stay safe and how to be a defensive driver and all of those kinds of things. And, and uh, that sticks with me. Those things that my mom taught me, and of course, that's a tiny little thing. That those are by by far, uh, you know, amongst the least important, perhaps, of the things my mom taught me. But the impact that our moms have on us throughout life can can hardly be overstated. That uh, they are some of our first teachers. They are some of our first disciplinarians. Our moms often are the ones from whom we first hear the gospel, or or have those kinds of conversations. We learn to pray with them. Our moms are, are of powerful uh, impact in our lives. And as we open to Second Timothy today, just to cover this one uh, brief chapter, I do say brief, it's my intention for us not to spend too much time on it, but something very interesting about Timothy was the impact his mom had in his life. You know, when you're reading the Old Testament and you're reading through the genealogies and particularly the genealogies of the kings or whatnot, it's not uncommon to have the mother listed. You know, this was so-and-so and, and uh, you know, the, the, the son of so-and-so and his mom was, and, and it would list who the mother was. But in the New Testament, it's less common. But when we get to Timothy, we, we have actually a surprising amount of information about his mom and about his grandmother. They were both Christians. And uh, they both had a, a significant impact on the life of young Timothy. And so as we turn to Second Timothy, this is a book written by Paul to Timothy. And uh, Timothy is Paul's young protege. And Second uh, Timothy is uh, typically understood as the last of Paul's writings before he dies. He's already being poured out. He's expecting that uh, he's going to die very soon. And Timothy has been his close disciple, his protege during all this time. And, and he, he loves Timothy. They have a father-son relationship. So what kind of message might he pass on? That kind of uh, gives us a little bit of extra weight when we read Second Timothy, knowing that this is uh, the last letter from the great Apostle Paul as he is suffering and preparing to suffer the final and die what will he say to Timothy? Well, he starts off in our chapter today talking about the environment that we face. Even as I was reading through that uh, to you this morning, I was struck again by how much of a downer that first paragraph is. That it really is talking about our uh, culture, our world, about the human heart, and how it shows itself. And it's, uh, it's a, a powerful and uh, low kind of passage, at least introduction in uh, that paragraph. Uh, so the environment we face sets the, sets the tone, the context for the things that he's going to say in following. And he, he says, first of all, he's discussing the world's last days. He says, but understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. Well, that phrase, last days, doesn't occur an enormous uh, number of times, but I think it's important for us to understand what he means here. He's not talking here just about the end times right before the coming of Christ, right before the judgment or, or the end of the world kind of things. When you think about last days in, in uh, New Testament language, that refers to the time that started with Christ and it will end with the return of Christ. And so all of that is the last days. And of course, it will build up and there are certain uh, aspects of the end and the day and the great day and things like that. But Often this term last days refers to the time in the world where Christian ministry has begun, where Christ's ministry has, uh, has had its effect, and, and now we have the birth of the church, and now we have the spread of the gospel, etc. The last days refers to that whole time period. For example, in Acts chapter 2 and verse 17, In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. The time of the Spirit, which is now, which we saw beginning even at Pentecost, that's where this comment is made, begins the last days. That There's a correlation between the two. Or for example, in Hebrews chapter 1, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, 
He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. So last days, the world's last days in this sense, refers to that time when God is sending forth the gospel into the world, miraculously drawing sinners to Himself, saving people. Jew and Gentile alike, that the gospel is going out into the world and the church is growing and we see wonderful things happen. We see sinners being saved and we see God at work redeeming people. While at the same time that those miraculous things are happening, while the, at, at the same exact time that you see glorious events happening and, and people being reconciled to God, yet you have a contrary influence at work as well. You have evil, taking on new expressions. You have, you have encroaches into the church even. You have a, a growth, a, a rebellion that is continuing alongside the great saving work of God. You've got this awful rebellion that is growing, something that Paul here calls times of difficulty. So he says, Timothy, we are in these last days. This is what's going on right now in this sense that you've got the growth and spread of the gospel and God doing wonderful things and you've got evil in all its forms. And he points out some of those forms as he's discussing the worldliness of people. That list in 2, 3, and 4, I won't even read again. It's just so dark about people, the way they mistreat one another. Even parents. The, the way their, their own thinking about themselves is skewed. It's off-center. They think too much of themselves. They value material things rather than spiritual things. The, the growth of worldliness of people at this time is, is an awful thing. They pursue evil. Basically, you take any virtue, stand it on its head, and that's what they pursue. It's, a, it's a, a dark paragraph. It's a dark reality. And of course, we can look around us and see these things going on. We can see uh, essentially all of the, the brutality, the lack of self-control, heartlessness, they're unappeasable, etc., etc. Loving, loving pleasure rather than loving God. You don't have to look too far to find that, of course. We live in a, in a world that that is dangerous and dark. And this is the kind of influence around us. This is the kind of darkness that is going on. This is the kind of worldliness that's, that's around us. And it's not just a worldliness that's out there. It's, it's not just the bad people who do these things. He says, actually, the worldliness is also in the church. Verses 5 through 9, he turns a corner in describing all this darkness. And as we're reading through that, we're kind of imagining, oh, yeah, those people out there. And, and yeah, those unbelievers, they're really like this. And, and those people who, who don't go to church or those non-Christians, yeah, I see that, I see that. And then verse 5, he says, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. And among those are people who creep into homes connected with the church, that actually this worldliness can affect the church as well. It's not just out there. As if there's darkness and evil out there and, and purity and holiness in here. Within the church you have you have the influence of this same kind of worldliness in, in different ways. And of course you can look to your own heart and you can see, well, as I was reading through those first couple of paragraphs, I kind of recognized myself. That you have this worldliness actually creeps into the church that you have these who have the appearance of godliness. They appear to be Christian. And it seems like it's even some ministers, those who, 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 who creep into to certain families and homes and take advantage of the weak and they, they accomplish their own purposes in that, that they, they, they minister for their own power, administer for their own benefit. They minister because of what they gain from it, whether it's financial or power or influence or what it might be. They have the appearance of godliness. They look right, but they're wrong. They, they look like Christians, <clears throat> but they are not Christians. And he says, avoid such people. 
You ever thought how easy it is to appear to be Christian? Now, for, for a Christian who's trying to go through life and, and, and walk with Christ and be honoring, we, we recognize, man, it's really difficult being a Christian. And, and because my heart is dark and the, the sin is revealed and all that kind of stuff, it, it's actually not all that easy. But if, you, if you're on the outside and you just want to pretend to be a Christian, it's really easy. Clean up your language a little bit. Don't say certain things. And avoid the majority of, of, of real external kind of sin that people frown on. If you, can, if you could do those things and show up at church, you're in. You're in. You look Christian. It's really easy to pretend. And he says, avoid such people. Bad company ruins good morals. Well, how are we to understand that idea of avoiding sinners? What does he mean by that? What does he mean to avoid such people? The fact is, Christians sometimes sin. I didn't know if you were aware of that, that you weren't the only one. The person sitting next to you also sins. The person talking to you also sins. And so Christians sometimes sin, and sometimes they even sin in bad ways, really overtly bad ways. And we say, oh, that is clearly egregious sin. So what do we do with that person? Don't associate with that person? Well, I hope not because we would take social distancing to its extreme and we would not associate with one another anymore. No, uh, a sinful Christian who repents, wrestles with their sin, who throws themselves on the mercy of Christ, a, a repentant Christian, that's a good thing. That's a good relationship, something to maintain. That's something to pursue. You want to help that person. And, and really, if we're honest, that's all of us. That we are Christians, we recognize I have sin, and so I repent of that sin and I move forward. So the standard isn't, you know, if you see a Christian who sins, disassociate from that Christian. That's not the issue at all. Because Christians do sin. We are just to be repentant. We are to be those who throw ourselves on the mercy of Christ and we work through that and we're humble before one another and we continue. That's that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about someone who claims the name of Christ, but they persist in unrepentant sin. They continue in it unrepentant. I'm just going to do this thing. This is just who I am. And they continue in that while claiming the name of Christ and yet remaining unrepentant, continuing in that sin, now we have a problem. Now we have a real issue. Paul says, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with, the sex, with sexually immoral people. Wow, okay. But he goes on. He says, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a reviler, a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So here you have someone who claims the name of Christ and yet they live directly contrary to it and are unrepentant in that. It's not that they're struggling with it. They're running with it. And he says in those situations... We are to avoid such people that actually in that kind of a context where someone is unrepentant in their sin, they're, they're indicating by their ongoing lifestyle, not their occasional slip-ups, not their, not their foibles where they stub their toe and they said a bad word and so I'm going to disassociate. No, this is a person who continues in unrepentant sin. Well, now we have a different story. We have a different issue where in the end, you're going to end up disassociating from that person. And that's what he says there, that this worldliness that we see out in the world often creeps into the church. And when it creeps into the church, when you see someone who is this kind of person who has the appearance of godliness but denies the power of it, someone who looks like a Christian until you scratch the surface and see what's really going on, that there is a distinction between a Christian who's a sinner and growing in Christ versus someone who has put on the veneer And they're going to live how they want when you're not looking. Regardless of of any kind of actual holiness, any reality of 
walking with Christ. So you have some of these who claim to be Christians. The worldliness is not just out there. Sometimes they claim to be Christians and, and sometimes they claim to be pastors. They claim to be ministers. And they're able to take advantage of the poor. They're able to prey upon the weak to benefit themselves. And he says, avoid such people. And then he gives the example of himself. He gives a great example starting in, in verse 10. If you ever wonder, by the way, or who uh, Janice and Jambres are in uh, that earlier section. The, uh, traditionally, those are the names of the two uh, court magicians who were kind of dueling with Moses, Janice and Jambres. Those are the ones who were faking the exact same things that the Lord was doing through Moses. These guys would come along and they would fake some of them, uh, the Janice and Jambres. And, uh, and so you have those who oppose the working of God by imitating it, by pretending like they're doing the same thing. He says, avoid such people. In verse 10, we see an example to emulate. Paul's own example. He says, you see this out there in the world. You see this context in which you're living. It can be very dark. It can be out there very dark. And sometimes it creeps in and it can be very dark. He says, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. What, a, what an example Timothy had. He traveled with Paul, the apostle. The greatest missionary ever. And Timothy got to be his buddy. Timothy got to carry his luggage. Contrary to the Janus and Jambres types, Timothy had Paul to look at. What an example Paul's life was. Paul was so utterly changed by the gospel. He was so utterly consumed with Christ and ministering Christ to other people that he could say, look at my teaching and my conduct and my aim in life. That's the example you have to imitate. Not, not the world, not the worldliness that creeps in. Imitate me. So Timothy had that. Timothy knew. Timothy knew what Paul was like when he had been up all night and hadn't eaten. If you've ever been around me when I've been up all night and haven't eaten, I'm sorry. I need to repent in front of you. He traveled with him. He, he knew what Paul was like when Paul suffered. When those mean people said those mean things about Paul, how did Paul respond? Timothy knew. He didn't imagine. He remembered. He knew. Paul was quite an example to emulate. But not only in those positive ways. Those were all positive and good things. You notice that? My conduct, my aim in life, my faith. Well, then he kind of transitions and he talks about how he uh, has endured evil in verse 11. Not, not just all those good things, my steadfastness, my love, my patience. Verse 11, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and Lystra. Not only the way Paul conducted his life under good circumstances, but how he conducted his life under terrible circumstances, when he was the object of derision and scorn and lies, how he had lived when the chips were down. Paul didn't, Paul didn't live and minister somewhere in a, a monastery, you know, writing his letters and sending them away out into the world and then, you know, writing his letters and, and, and being safe and secure and, and in comfort all the time. He was out there ministering and out there suffering. And it was the context of that suffering, very often, from which he wrote letters like Philippians, which drips with love, grace. He writes from prison. And so, in this context, he says, uh, Timothy, you not only have my, my example of the positive things, when things were going well, you behave like I did, say the things I said, but also when things are awful, you have my example as well. And so he, he points out some of those examples, like the persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. If you remember a little bit of, uh, of Paul's story, just very briefly, he was on his way when he was, uh, when he was a, a Pharisee and he was seeking Christians to root out. He was trying to get rid of the church. And so he had received letters from the elders. He was going to Damascus and he was going to find those lousy Christians and he was going to throw them in jail. 
As he's on his way there, of course, the Lord confronts him, changes his heart. Instead, now he's a Christian. He goes into Damascus, and of course, initially he's blind, and etc. But while he's there, what does he start doing? He starts ministering. He starts proclaiming the gospel and saying, my Jewish brothers, you've missed it. Here is Christ, and the Bible tells us to expect Christ, and here he is. Remember what happened? They didn't receive him with joy. They didn't, uh, you know, he didn't start a, a new successful Bible study ministry. No, they were trying to kill him. So he has to escape the city by being lowered down in a basket down the city wall to run away. So where does he run away to? He goes to Jerusalem. Well, there he certainly will be received, right? Well, no, he shows up in Jerusalem. And even the Christians are afraid of him in Jerusalem. And so it takes, it takes a while and, and Barnabas to, to kind of play the middle child there and, and bring the two opposing sides together so that the Christians in Jerusalem will now accept Paul and Paul starts ministering. And what happens? Pretty soon the, the Greek-speaking Jews want to kill him again. And so he has to run off and he, he runs to Tarsus, goes to Tarsus, and then eventually Barnabas goes and gets him and brings him to Antioch. And, uh, and there they're ministering in that time. Well, after a period of time, the Holy Spirit called Paul and Barnabas into this ministry. Set them aside for me. Send them. They're going to go as my missionaries. They're going to go take this gospel. And so they do. They leave there. They go to Cyprus. They face opposition in Cyprus. So they go to Antioch of Pisidia, which is a different Antioch than the one they had left. They go to Antioch of Pisidia. And then from there, they, they, they kind of run from there to Iconium. They go from there to Lystra. Right? And all the while, every time he preaches, there's opposition. Well, now the opposition begins to follow him, and it's kind of mounting. And so he shows up in Lystra, and he's ministering there. And the opposition got so bad that they, they actually stone Paul. And they assume he's dead, so they drag him out of town and leave him, because that's where you leave the dead bodies of the men that you stone to death. But the Lord rescued him again and again and again, starting with that basket. And on and on, the Lord rescued him. Paul was no fair-weather apostle. He ministered in the thick of it for decades, faithfully. And he says, Timothy, you have, you have my example to look at, both how I behaved and, and taught and lived during the good times as well as during the bad times. And there are certain expectations of the godly and of the evil that we can expect in verses 12 and 13, he says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's not just apostles. It's not just, it's not just the two of us, Timothy. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. The world will continue to attempt to deceive, it will it will continue to try and to try and crush us with its ways or win us over to behave just like it. The expectations of the godly and, and the evil, the godly can expect to be opposed by the world, and the evil can expect to continue growing more and more deceptive, going farther and farther into it, themselves being deceived and deceiving others. But Thirdly, God has given us the equipment to thrive. We need more than just examples. Examples are important. You can look at someone's lifestyle and you can see the things that they did and they valued and you can see the results. An example is an important thing. And he's given us an example of the world here and, and the results of the world. He's given us his own example. Look at my lifestyle, Timothy. I've done these things and said these things in the good time and the bad Oh, follow my example. But we need more than examples. And so God has given us the equipment for us to thrive. If you think about what's going on in this letter, Paul, who has suffered all these things, has traveled all these miles with Timothy, who loves Timothy as a father loves a son, loves him. And now Paul's dying. He'll never see Timothy again. Timothy's a young man. He's a minister. Timothy's going to face the same kind of trials that Paul himself faced. Is he prepared? Is he equipped? What, what final thing could Paul say? What could he give him? What piece of advice, what instruction could Paul give to Timothy to help him endure the stuff that 
almost crushed Paul when he says we despaired even of life itself because the opposition was so strong. What, what gift will he give him? What instruction? What advice? Well, he gives him the foundation in Scripture. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. He says you have a foundation, the foundation of Scripture. And remember from whom you learned it. Now that's ambiguous. Did he learn it from Paul? Well, certainly yes. But he learned it from his mother. He learned it from his grandmother. He was raised with this foundation. And Paul is saying, a foundation was given to you decades ago. Build on that foundation. That very foundation. The one that your mom gave you. The one that that your mom, uh, when she taught you the word at her knee, so that you would know God. So that you would follow Christ. So that you would understand the gospel. That you would believe the gospel. She gave you that foundation. Build on it. Make it your own. Cling to it. Hold to it. That's the foundation that was given. Timothy was from Lystra. The very place where Paul was stoned and dragged out of the city and left for dead. That was Timothy's hometown. And I wonder, now Paul was stoned there on his first missionary journey. And his second missionary journey would have been some years later. And I wonder if Timothy was there or if he uh, heard the scuttlebutt about Paul being stoned. This crazy missionary who came to town and, and was stoned and left for dead. I wonder if, I wonder if that's part of Timothy's recollection that that actually he has known of Paul from earlier, uh, from before he even met him. I don't know. But Timothy was there, was a young man of, of a Christian mom, an unbelieving father, but a Christian mom who had ministered to him. And when Paul shows up on his second missionary journey, he decides he wants to take Timothy with him. He wants Timothy as his protege. He wants to teach him. He wants him to be his son in the faith. And so this foundation that was laid by Timothy's mom and grandmother was continued and built upon by Paul himself. And Timothy was there often when Paul was writing new scripture. When New Testament letters were being written, he was there having that foundation. Can you imagine? You know, like, what would you do when Paul's over there writing it or he's having his amanuensis, uh, his scribe, write this new book? You know, how, would, would, could you have kept Timothy away, you know? You know, what, what, what's next? You know, I want to, I'm the first one that gets to read this new epistle. I don't have any idea how that all worked. And if he knew, etc. I don't know. But his foundation was being built upon. This foundation that had been laid by Timothy's mother. If you think about that. Here's Timothy, the protege of the greatest gospel minister ever. And where did he learn the Bible? From his mom. His mom taught him to know Christ. His mom shared the gospel with him and taught him to understand the gospel. His mom taught him the word. What an opportunity moms have. His mom didn't know that uh, he was going to be Timothy, who would show up, you know, so often in the New Testament that he would be Timothy, the recipient of two inspired letters from Paul. But she taught him the word. What an opportunity moms have. What, what a unique time when the, the, the children are small and I know they're busy when they're small. And I know mom's life is busy when those kids are small and they're, and they're running hither and yon and you can't hardly uh, keep track of them and, and nap time and ah, you're not napping, why aren't you napping? And bedtime, why aren't you going to bed? And, and uh, yes, a bath is okay to, to get in and get clean. and All that stuff that moms go through. And it's such a unique and precious opportunity to begin teaching your children to know God. That's an opportunity that dads don't have in the same way. Dads have their own responsibility and their own opportunity, but it's a different setup. I haven't chased my little ones around at all uh, like my wife has. 
I've been involved in my kids' life, always have. I've always sought to, to, to be with them, to be the one who teaches them the Bible. But my, my wife has opportunities that I just don't have. Moms, take those opportunities. Teach your kids, whether they're, whether they're little tykes underfoot or whether they're graduating seniors. Take the time and teach your kids to know who Christ is. To understand their own sin, particularly their own sin in light of a holy God. And what it is Christ has done for us in His own obedience, His own sacrifice. Teach your children to trust in Christ. To know Him. To know His Word. It's a foundation. It's an opportunity that you get to minister in their lives. So there's a foundation of Scripture. And there's sufficiency in that Scripture. Verse 16, it's a very familiar passage to us, a very familiar verse. All Scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. I, I wonder, moms, if you, if you ever engage in teaching, reproof, correction, and training of your children. Just the waking hours, usually is when you engage in that. That's a normal thing. From the time they're little to the the interesting intricacies when they get older, you are always teaching. You are always uh, reproving and correcting and training. That's what moms do. That's what parents do. But moms have that unique opportunity. And what Paul is saying here, in in this final epistle to his beloved Timothy, Timothy, who's about to face the world on his own, He's about to go through these things himself. And Paul says, remember that foundation that your mom gave you, that I have built upon, says Paul. Remember that foundation. It is sufficient. It is breathed out by God. All Scripture is breathed out by God. The idea is when you speak, that breath that comes out of your mouth, that's the idea. It's not just that the Bible is inspiring. Of course, the Bible is inspiring, but that's not what it means. It means that it came from God's breath. This is God's word. What does God say? He says this. This is breathed out. There's not anything else that is said to be breathed out in the same way. God's word is what is breathed out. God's word, the Bible. All of the Bible is breathed out by God. It comes from Him. It is inspired by Him. It is actually expired by Him. It is breathed out, spoken by Him. It is the only revealed Word of God. And He says it is profitable. It's useful. It, 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 it accomplishes things. And what, is it, what does it accomplish? What's it for? Well, He gives those four things there. Teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. The idea of teaching, of course, is giving sound, gospel, biblical, Christ-centered teaching. Teaching the gospel to your kids. Giving sound teaching. That's the teaching. Of course, the Bible is useful for that. It is sufficient for that. Where should you get your doctrine? You get your doctrine from here. The doctrine you get from here is sufficient. For teaching, for reproof, or exposing false teachings. And those who teach that false teaching, that's what reproof is. The Bible exposes that. Compare their teaching to the Bible and it will be exposed whether they're teaching and they are false or not. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, and for correction. The idea there is exposing false or ungodly practices. The the first one, the reproof, was more about the doctrine and correcting doctrine, but very closely related to it is the idea of correction correcting lifestyle, observing evils in behavior, observing ungodly practices or ethics, lifestyle, and exposing that. The Word does that. Compare someone's life to God's Word, and it is profitable for correction. And finally, it is profitable, it is sufficient for training in righteousness, for teaching true and godly behavior. True and godly lifestyle. And so you have the Bible is adequate and is sufficient for discovering all teaching that is true and for teaching a lifestyle that is honoring to God. And it is profitable for exposing false teaching and false teachers, and it is profitable for correcting a false lifestyle, false behavior that 
God's word is sufficient. So on, on this last opportunity that Paul has in writing to Timothy to prepare him for life without Paul, the thing that he says, the thing that he drives home, the, the key that he gives, the sufficient thing that he passes on to Timothy that will be of most benefit in Timothy's life and ministry in dealing with this world is the Word. He says all Scripture is inspired by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And then we have the goal of Scripture, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The man of God here seems like it may refer specifically to a minister, uh, but and he's writing to Timothy. Paul, a minister, is writing to Timothy, who's a minister, and 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 uh, and that seems to be the case. Man of God is is uh, that kind of language used from the Old Testament, but the application is the same for all of us. In order for us to be equipped for life as Christians in this world, what do we need? We need Scripture. And Scripture is sufficient in all of these ways. And the purpose of all of that is that the man of God, the woman of God, that we would be complete, equipped for every good work. That's the goal of Scripture. And isn't that the goal of mothering? Isn't that the goal of parenting? You know, kids... Kids are fun and squishy, and you get to hold them, and you get to, you know, smell them. Sometimes they smell good, and sometimes they don't, and you don't really want to. And Stephen was talking about changing diapers earlier. I've changed a lot of diapers. But kids, you know, what's the goal of parenting? You don't have a child so you can snuggle a child. You don't have a child so that you can, um, you know, just enjoy this addition to your life, you know, like an accessory, Right? When we have children as Christians, we're thinking this child is is uh, going to live forever. I want this child to know Christ. I want this child to, to be saved, to be a Christian. But I want this child to be Christian, meaning to think biblically, to interact with the world in a biblical fashion. I want this child to be like that. And I want this child to be prepared for all that life has to throw at this child. All that the world can attack, all that the world can bring, I want my child to be ready for those things. How can I do that? What is sufficient for that? The Bible is sufficient for that. That's how we train our children. That's how we bring our children to Christ, is by teaching them the Bible, laying before them the gospel, calling them to believe in the same Jesus we believe in. We want them to be Christians, and and the way we ourselves influence that, invest in that, minister that, is by teaching the gospel, teaching the Bible. And the way we prepare our children to deal with, with life is to teach them the Bible. That they would know who Christ is, that they would know who they are in Christ, what exactly He has done for them. There are other things we should teach our children, but what we are trying to do is prepare them for life in this world. And primarily, the the primary obstacles they will run against are the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the Bible teaches you how to navigate those things. The Bible prepares you and equips you for how to live the Christian life in this world. It is the Bible that is that is adequate to train us, to equip us, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's what I want for my children. I want them to be complete, equipped for every good work. And so, this is Mother's Day, and this is a sermon on the Word of God for mothers. It's really for all of us. But mothers have such a unique opportunity. You have such a unique time and relationship with your children, whether they're, whether they're tiny and sleeping on your shoulder or whether they're in their 20s and arguing with you and everything in between. Mothers have such a unique opportunity. The exhortation from this is teach them God's Word. Continue laying that foundation. 
the foundation that can sustain them, that is sufficient to build upon for all of their lives. Moms, take that opportunity. And, and, and it may be that opportunities have passed. I guarantee you, opportunities have passed. Teach now. Train now. Reprove, rebuke, exhort now. Continue to invest in your kids. Use this opportunity in the relationship that God has given you to invest in your children, to build on that foundation of Christ and what He has done in their lives. So moms, learn the Bible yourself and teach it. Teach Christ to your kids. The second point of application, if your mom taught you about Christ, praise God and thank your mom. What a blessing. What a blessing to, to have learned in, in, in the teaching from your mother from the beginning of your life, the reality of who God is and how we can know Him. From your earliest days, what a blessing you have. So if you have a mom like that, praise God and thank your mother. You were given a, a better foundation to address life, to live through this world with all of the obstacles and the conflicts and the difficulties and the, and the loss and the pain and the everything. You were given the, the appropriate, the proper foundation for handling those things. But for all of us, the application is look to the Bible as the sufficient, God-breathed foundation tool that God uses in communicating to us, in training us, in equipping us that we would be complete. That means lacking nothing. Equipped for every good work. Look to the Bible. Study the Bible. And that's why we study the Bible. That's why we teach the Bible. That's why we encourage people to read the Bible. It is God's Word to us. Let's learn it. Let's know it. Let's see what He has said to us. Let's see who He communicates Himself to be. We have ideas. We're born with ideas of what God is like. And they are not biblical ideas. We need to be re-educated. We need to be taught the truth from God's Word that, that is different in certain ways from our imaginings. We need to learn from God's Word that He is actually holy. That He's our Creator. We need to learn from God's Word about who we are. Because we're born with messed up ideas about who we are. I mean, after all, we're pretty good, right? Well, yes, in a lot of ways. But compared to God's standard of perfection, no, we have sin. We've rebelled against Him. We need to know that. We need to be taught that from God's Word. We need to understand that. And how can that be addressed? How, how, can, we, how can we be reconciled to God in light of those truth, two things? We're not going to imagine a way where we could be reconciled. But the Bible teaches us about Christ, who is Himself the spotless Lamb of God, who is Himself the holy, perfect Son of God who took on flesh. And in Him, because of His life and because of His death, by faith in Him, we have reconciliation to God. You won't learn that anywhere else. That comes from God's Word. And so, this morning on Mother's Day, I want to celebrate our mothers and I want to encourage our mothers to continue looking to God's Word. Continue teaching God's Word to your children. Now, it may be that you have taught God's Word to your children for a long time and you're thinking, it's not taken. <laughs> it's, not, it's not getting through. Keep teaching God's Word. Keep laying that foundation. It may be that that doesn't bear fruit for a decade. Three decades. It may be that that it doesn't bear fruit for a long, long time. It may be that you don't ever get to see the fruit. But you have the opportunity to lay that foundation. You have the opportunity to lay before your children the God-breathed, sufficient Word of God to point them to Christ. What an opportunity you have. What an opportunity we have. So, happy Mother's Day. To all of you mothers, thank you for teaching your children about Christ. Thank you for directing them to your Savior. It's the only foundation that will endure. 
It's the only source of teaching. It's the, it's the only way that child can be built into a person who can endure like Paul in the good times and in the horrific times. It's only found in God's Word. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word that You have breathed it out to us, that You have spoken in Your Word, the Bible. I'm encouraged. I'm, I'm challenged by Paul's last words to Timothy. Timothy, trust your Bible. Look to it. It's sufficient that you would be complete and prepared to minister in every, every good work. I'm challenged by that because I, I want to say, oh yeah, and also, and what about this too? But your word is sufficient. Father, I am grateful for Christian mothers who give of themselves sacrificially to invest in their children, to bless their children, to bring their children to you, to teach them how to know you and teach them your word. Thank you for the Christian moms in our midst. I pray that you would bless them. I pray that today their, their uh, families would, would honor them and, and bless them because they have pointed them to Christ. Thank you for the blessings Christian mothers are in our lives. Thank you for the blessings of our moms. And thank you that you have communicated to us in your word. You have not left us alone to figure things out. You have given us your sufficient, God-breathed Scripture. We rejoice that we have it. We pray that you would take even what has been taught from it today, that you would drive it into our hearts, that you would change us by this Word, that you, by your Spirit, would be at work in us, that we would be blessed by you even as we go out. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. God bless you all. There, there will be no evening church tonight, but there will be a family up here to pray with you if you want to pray with them. Otherwise, God bless you all. Happy Mother's Day. And you're dismissed.